Congress can influence events simply by doing nothing. And that is an important point to keep in mind. Yes, in some areas, presidents can act without congressional consent. But in many areas, presidents require Congress to go along. So if Congress refuses to cooperate, then the presidential initiative uh, will die. Welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Chris Park, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Gina. Congress has played different roles in the formation and conduct of U.S. foreign policy since the nation's founding. The powers of Congress and the president are laid out in the Constitution, but the precise limits of their powers have been contested. What powers does Congress have over foreign policy? How does this relate to the executive branch's powers? If Republicans take back the House in the 2022 elections, what implications will that have on the Biden administration's foreign policy agenda? Dr. James Lindsay joins us on this Foreign Policy Toolbox episode to discuss Congress and foreign policy. James Lindsay is Senior Vice President, Director of Studies, and Maurice R. Greenberg Chair at the Council of Foreign Relations, where he oversees the work of the David Rockefeller Studies Program. In the past, he has served as Deputy Director and Senior Fellow in the Foreign Policy Studies Program at the Brookings Institution, as Director for Global Issues and Multilateral Affairs on the staff of the National Security Council, and as a staff expert for the United States Institute of Peace Congressionally Mandated Task Force on the United Nations. He's a leading authority on the American foreign policymaking process and the domestic politics of American foreign policy. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Hawkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Thank you so much for joining us again on the podcast, Jim. Thank you for having me. The United States Constitution explicitly grants several powers to Congress. Can you briefly explain to our listeners the enumerated powers related to foreign policy and the scope of these powers? I'd be happy to, Chris. But first, I should point out there's a difference between enumerated powers given to Congress, that is to the House and the Senate, and enumerated powers given specifically to the Senate. So let's begin with powers given to Congress as a whole. Those that are most relevant for foreign affairs would include the power to provide for the common defense, to raise and support armies, to provide and maintain a navy. Congress is also charged with the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations. That means setting trade policy. Congress is empowered to establish rules for immigration. Congress has the power to declare war, uh, which includes not just full-scale war, but even relatively minor skirmishes. Congress is charged with the power to define and punish piracies and felonies committed on the high seas, as well as offenses against the laws of nations. Now, the Senate has two powers that are relevant to our discussion. One is the power to confirm presidential nominees. Uh, not just for the head of executive agencies like the State Department or the Defense Department, but also senior military officers and ambassadors. And the Senate, uh, if it votes uh, two-thirds of senators voting present, uh, is allowed to give advice and consent to treaties. Those are enumerated powers specific to foreign affairs, (coughs) excuse me, specific to foreign affairs. There are also general powers that Congress has that are relevant here. Two, I would flag. One is the appropriations power. That is, money cannot be spent from the Treasury unless it has been appropriated by Congress. Obviously, a lot of activity in the foreign security, foreign policy field 
requires appropriations. And Congress also enjoys what's called the uh, necessary and proper clause. That is, it's empowered to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into effect uh, the government created under the Constitution. I'll just leave you with one last point on this, Chris, because it's important. Uh, Congress has extensive powers in foreign policy covering the broad field of foreign affairs, so much so that conflicts between presidents and Congress over foreign policy are relatively seldom about constitutional issues. They're really, in fact, about substantive disagreements or political differences. Well, thank you so much for running down that long list of congressional powers. And we'll we'll return to different aspects um, that you've touched on. But I first want to focus on the appropriations power that Congress has. Like you said, Congress has the power of the purse in that it has the sole authority to appropriate funds for the federal government. How does this exactly influence foreign policy? Well, it influences foreign policy to the extent that dollars are policy. So if the president uh, wishes to, say, for example, build a weapon system that Congress refuses to provide appropriations for that weapon system uh, cannot be built. Likewise, if the president would like the United States to provide aid to a foreign government and Congress refuses to go along, then that aid, then that aid cannot be provided. Another power that you mentioned that Congress has is the power to declare war. But the last time the United States formally declared war, or I should say Congress formally declared war, was during World War II. How has this power evolved, and how is this power relevant today in our discussion of U.S. foreign policy? You ask a very good question, Chris, but I want to challenge one of the premises of it, which is that the clause in the Constitution that refers to declaring war means that congressional action has to consist in the form of passing a piece of legislation that says the United States declares war on someone. There's nothing in the Constitution that requires that. And clearly from reading the pages of notes on the Constitutional Convention, what the founders were concerned about and wanted to see is congressional authorization of the use of military force. Particularly, we're talking about taking the United States from a situation of peace to a situation of war or hostilities. And it was clear for the framers that that power should lie with the Congress and not with the president. Indeed, when uh, Pierce Butler, a delegate to the Constitutional Convention, moved to vest the war power in the president, he got no seconding from any other delegate at the convention. And again, if you look at the long history of the American use of military forces overseas, most of them have been authorized. Even if you go back and look at, for example, the United States invasion of Afghanistan in 2001 or the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, they were authorized by the Congresses at the time. The title given to them is the AUMF, Authorization to Use Military Force. So in that sense, Congress discharged his duty. Whether those invasions were wise or not uh, is a whole separate issue. The one great counterexample to Congress authorizing the use of large-scale military hostilities 
would be President Harry Truman's decision in late June 1950 to authorize U.S. forces to go to the defense of South Korea, a country for which the United States at that time did not have a treaty of alliance a treaty of alliance or a military commitment. Truman did so nonetheless and did so without going to Congress seeking authorization. That is the one great counterexample uh, to the tradition of seeking out authorizations to use military force. So we also wanted to de- differ upon like the executive legislative overlap with foreign policy powers. As you laid out, the president as commander-in-chief and chief diplomat has immense power over United States foreign policy. Can you describe the relationship between Congress and the president over foreign policy issues? Does president have like an upper hand maybe in setting the policy direction of United States regarding their foreign powers or diplomatic states? Let me give you a precise answer. Yes and no. Put it differently, Gina. It depends. The president has powers in the foreign affairs realm, both powers that are noted in the constitution, the text, but also powers the president has acquired over time through customary use. I think it's important to understand when we look at the issue of the Congress and the president in foreign affairs, they both have significant powers to act. What the president has are sort of certain inherent advantages. And they come from the fact that the president, one, can often act and then put the burden on Congress to reverse him. Now, keep in mind, for Congress to act requires Congress to pass legislation. Legislation can be uh, vetoed by the president. So effectively, for Congress to overrule the president, you have to be able to get to two-thirds support in both houses. That supermajority is very hard to reach. Indeed, if you go back to, uh, you would have to go back to 1985 to find the last time Congress overrode a president when it came to foreign affairs legislation. This was uh, a move to put sanctions on South Africa where Congress overrode Ronald Reagan. So the president can act, create a fait accompli and require uh, Congress to respond. Uh, the president also has the ability in many ways to control the information flow. For Congress, things can be done secretly, and presidents can and have at times uh, provided the public and lawmakers with only portions of the truth, and sometimes have uh, shaded the truth in ways to make it difficult for Congress to act or make Congress believe uh, it shouldn't act. So the president has what Alexander Hamilton called the, the advantages of uh, of speed and dispatch. Uh, when it comes to this. And this has been uh, something that presidents, particularly modern presidents, since the end of World War II, uh, have really used to their advantage. Kind of going off what you said about this kind of change into modern presidency, the power of dispatch, has this relationship between the Congress and president changed over time? Are these changes mostly based on like a president's personality and their kind of foreign policy goals or are these changes minimal and just kind of based on history of time? Oh, Gina, there's been a lot of change over the course of history. Power has ebbed and flowed between the two ends of Pennsylvania Avenue. Indeed, if you were to go back and look at, let's say, the second half of the 19th century, it would be a time described as one of 
congressional government or senatorial supremacy. Presidents quite frequently found themselves boxed in uh, when it came to foreign affairs. Whereas if you look at the period, let's say from the late 1950s uh, to the end of the 1960s, that's the era of the imperial presidency that Arthur Schlesinger wrote uh, so well about. So power has ebbed and flowed. I do think it has been the overall trend is that presidents in 2022 are much more powerful in foreign affairs and have more leeway in foreign affairs than presidents had, uh, let's say, in 1822. Now, having said that, I think it's important to always keep in mind that uh, presidents, while they have uh, discretion in foreign affairs, they don't have they don't have universal discretion. They can't simply do as they please. In many of our conversations, we think about what Congress uh, has done uh, in foreign affairs. But the reality is, is that Congress can influence the course of foreign policy simply by doing nothing. The reality is, is that in many aspects of foreign affairs, think, for example, trade policy, for presidents to act, they need congressional consent or assent. If that's not there, then presidents can't do what they wish to do. Now, in other areas, they clearly can explore the boundaries of the power because the balance of the constitutional power uh, may be disputed. So with lower levels of military force, there may not be a congressional authorization. Think of the bombing uh, of Serbia back in the late 1990s under President Bill Clinton. Now, of course, here's where you get into arguments over whether or not the War Powers Resolution, this was a law enacted in 1973 uh, by Congress over Richard Nixon's veto, looking to reestablish uh, congressional say in decisions to use military force. And some people would argue that the effect of the War Powers Resolution is actually give a president a predated authorization to use military force. Others would argue that the War Powers Resolution itself is unconstitutional. One thing to keep in mind with all these debates is that the ultimate decision about whether something is constitutional or not is made by the United States Supreme Court, and it has never ruled on these specific questions. You mentioned earlier with Chris that there was the president's power to make treaties with the advice and consent of the Senate. How has this role played out in real life in recent history? Is the role of Senate great in making of treaties, or is it basically just a president? That's a great question, Gina. And I think it's important to keep in mind what the framers thought they were doing and how they viewed the world. Back in 1787, the assumption was that most interactions between the United States and other countries would come in the form of a treaty, that you would have diplomats from both sides, uh, negotiate a text, and the respected governments would ratify them. Now, the founders quite clearly did not want the president to have the power to enter into treaties on his, maybe someday her own, because the founders treated treaties as supreme law of the land. Uh, so when they were negotiated and concluded, they would have legal authority in the United States. So what the framers did was envision a notion in which presidents would negotiate treaties because they have the advantage of things like dispatch secrecy, uh, but then they would bring it back home or consult with along the way with the United States Senate. That's how it worked at the start. Uh, in fact, uh, George Washington famously went early in his 
tenure as president to the Senate to consult with the Senate in person on a treaty he was proposing to strike with the Creek Indians in the southeastern portion of the United States. And the senators uh, said in response to the president, they would take it under advisement and essentially get back to him. President Washington uh, was offended by that because he wanted to, in essence, hash it out with the senators right then and there. And supposedly, as he exited the room, the Senate chamber, he remarked that he would be damned if he would ever return there again. And no president subsequently has sat down with the Senate in negotiated treaties or the U.S. negotiating position. However, uh, again, in the early portion of American history, it was common for presidents to consult with senators in advance of uh, sending out negotiating instructions. And on occasion, the Senate actually voted uh, to instruct uh, negotiators on behalf of the United States. After about 20 years or so, the American Republic, that practice died off. And you then had more or less a situation in which presidents would negotiate treaties and then bring them to the United States Senate. Uh, And that led to a practice which is and certainly in the past was unique among nations where presidents could strike a deal, bring the deal back to the United States Senate, and then discover that they can't get the Senate to give consent. And uh, that's not the case in a parliamentary democracy. You know, Prime Minister of Britain, if he negotiates or she negotiates a treaty with another power, uh, that essentially settles the matter because the prime minister commands the government. Very different system in the United States. And what you discovered is that at varying times in American history, the Senate has been more or less willing to give its consent to treaties. And perhaps the most famous treaty the United States Senate refused to give its advice and consent to was the Treaty of Versailles that Woodrow Wilson negotiated uh, in the aftermath of World War I. The treaty came up for a vote uh, three times and never succeeded in securing the two-thirds majority necessary to proceed. Uh, We have seen recently uh, instances in which uh, presidents have negotiated treaties and the Senate has declined to take them up. Uh, A treaty that has been languishing for quite a while uh, and that has some advocates still uh, in the United States Navy certainly is the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, uh, which the Senate has not taken up, uh, even though it was uh, negotiated back in the 1980s. And this, again, is an example of how, in this case, the Senate, but there are analogous examples of Congress, when we talk about non-treaty issues, can have an impact on policy simply by refusing to go along with what it is that a president wants to do. So, so far, we've talked about, you know, um, parts of foreign policy that Congress perhaps has sole authority over, other areas that Congress and President have shared authority, and how that relationship changed over time. And now I want to kind of shift towards talking about some of the congressional institutions in place to affect foreign policy. Um, one of the reasons why I wanted to have this conversation with you is that I am working at the House Foreign Affairs Committee this summer, or this semester, and I am seeing how the committee I'm working at is trying to influence U.S. foreign policy. But obviously, that committee is not the only committee relevant to uh, foreign policy and congressional role in you know, setting that foreign policy agenda. 
What would you say are some of the key committees um, relevant to foreign policy? And could you outline the roles and powers of these committees? Well, first point to make, Chris, is that there is a... The first point to make, Chris, is that there are a large number of committees that have a say over at least some slice of foreign policy, precisely because foreign policy crosses so many issues. I mean, we may think in our head something is overseas or it's at home, but for example, an issue to deal with agriculture or health has uh, relevance to committees that do domestic authorization and appropriation. But when we look at foreign policy, there, I would say three sets of committees, one in each chamber that are the most important or maybe a better way to put it, have the biggest chunks of the pie. And they would be the committee you mentioned, uh, House Foreign Affairs Committee and its Senate uh, counterpart, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And then you have the two armed services committee, one in the House and one in the Senate. And then you have the appropriations committees. Okay, The United States has a system which you might call sort of a twin track. And you have to understand not only actions of what are called the authorizing committees, which would be foreign affairs, Senate foreign relations, even more importantly, House Armed Services and Senate Foreign Services, but also the acts of the appropriations committees. And what happens is, is that what the so-called authorizing committees are in theory uh, empowered to pass legislation authorizing things to be done in what the appropriations committees are really be technical, the specific subcommittees of the appropriations committees that deal with defense or foreign operations then decide what gets to be funded. So you really have like a two-track uh, thing that operates. And last, I should just mention there also is relevant for this discussion, the work of the Senate and House intelligence committees, which were born in the intelligence controversies of the 1970s, where it was clear that U.S. intelligence agencies were doing things that no one on Capitol Hill knew about, and uh, Congress tried to bring those powers back in. Uh, Much less is understood or known about the actions of the intelligence committees for the simple reason that they do most of their work in private in secret. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these different committees that you mentioned have oversight duty over various executive branch um, agencies and departments, you know, the Center for Relations, House Foreign Affairs, uh, for example, oversee the State Department um, or USAID, while armed services have oversight over the Defense Department and authorize the budget relevant to these different agencies and departments. What does it mean, however, for these committees and Congress in general to have oversight over these various department and departments and agencies? And has Congress and these committees been effective in carrying out um, its oversight duties in recent years? Well, that's a big question, and you'll get different answers depending who you talk to, Chris. Uh, It is true that part of the job of the authorizing and appropriating committees is to pay attention to what it is that uh, the executive agencies they oversee are doing, as you note in the case of the Foreign Affairs and Foreign Relations Committee, you're essentially talking the State Department in USAID. In terms of the Armed Services Committee, you're essentially talking about uh, the Defense Department budget. And they conducted oversight in a variety of ways. It can be done through hearings where you bring 
the heads of the agencies to come and testify before Congress, fairly common thing to see. But it also happens on a staff level, particularly when you're getting into numbers in terms of budgets, uh, the staff that serve for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee or the House Armed Services Committee or the Senate uh, Foreign Operation, Operations Subcommittee uh, will spend time uh, quietly talking to people uh, in the agencies about what's going on. And ideally, what you're hoping is that you're having people who are having a check to make sure things are going right, problems are surfaced, reforms can be enacted and what have you. Now, I think over the last decade, maybe two decades, there have been growing concerns that this oversight process on the part of the United States Congress is not working as well as it used to be. Uh, Authors like Linda Fowler and others have documented uh, this at some length, and there's sort of complicated reasons for it that it tied into a broader concerns about the politicization and increasing partisanship we see on Capitol Hill. I mean, if you were to go back, let's just say uh, 30, 40 years ago and look at how uh, Congress operated, uh, you would have seen a lot of conflict between Congress and the president and also within Congress uh, over various foreign policy issues, whether it was to build the uh, midget man missile or to build uh, SDI, the Street Defense Initiative, Aid for the Contras. And what was noticeable is you would not only have conflict between, again, the two ends of Pennsylvania Avenue, but also within the parties themselves, where you would find Democrats, for example, on different sides of the issue. And that was because back in the 1980s, uh, while there were clearly divisions between Democrats and Republicans, uh, there was also some overlap, at least on some issues. You had uh, more of a center ground. Now in 2022, when you look at it, there's very little common ground. There are very few very conservative Democrats and or very liberal Republicans, if you want to use that framing. And so there has been much less cooperation uh, in terms of oversight. And probably the best example, it's not from foreign affairs specifically, was the unwillingness of the Republicans as a party to participate in the January 6th uh, committee process. Instead, you had individual Republicans like Liz Cheney uh, willing to proceed or to join the committee, but Republicans as a whole uh, refused to do so. And that's indicative of the kind of challenges you have in trying to have a functioning oversight system when the two parties are spitting angry at each other. Kind of on the topic is, you know, another major, you know, congressional committee action that happened in the past decade was um, the Benghazi hearings during the Obama administration. Would you say that's also another example of how oversight is broken, or would that be should be should that be understood to be, you know, Congress reasserting itself? At, um, and, you know, asserting a robust oversight role in terms of U.S. foreign policy conduct? Well, here's we run into a big challenge, Chris, and that is what you see depends upon where you stand. Certainly, Republicans have argued that the Benghazi hearings uh, were legitimate oversight trying to get uh, at the root causes of a terrible episode in American foreign policy. Democrats counter-arguing that This was not about trying to better understand what happened uh, during those terrible 
13 or so hours in Benghazi, but uh, an effort to try to handicap and derail uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign for the presidency. And this is always a challenge that you have in any political environment to what extent things are being done for substantive reasons as opposed to uh, political reasons. But it points to the fact that any oversight hearing can become deeply politicized. And again, uh, if you talk to many Republicans, they would argue that the effort to impeach Donald Trump not once but twice was uh, political and not driven by substance. Uh, Democrats argue uh, quite strongly the opposite point of view. So sometimes uh, whether something is fair or not lies in the eye of the beholder. And I think it's safe to say that sometimes people's standards change depending upon whose ox is getting gored. To expand this discussion to Congress's legislative powers, we wanted to know what are some of the different kinds of foreign policy legislations Congress can pass? And how much really impact does congressional legislation have on the conduct of U.S. foreign policy? Well, again, Gina, I would go back and, and stress one point, uh, which should never be lost in this conversation, which is that Congress can influence events simply by doing nothing. And that is an important point to keep in mind. Yes, in some areas, presidents can act without congressional consent, but in many areas, presidents require Congress to go along. So if Congress refuses to cooperate, then the presidential initiative uh, will die. So that's point number one. Point number two, in terms of legislation, Congress can act in two ways or two really kinds of legislation. One is what might call substantive legislation. That is Congress specifies what the government should do. So Congress may decide it's going to fund a new generation of fighter planes or decide it is going to cut off foreign aid for a country. Those are substantive decisions in which Congress directly stipulates what the U.S. government is going to do. There's a second category of legislation, however, that's as important and often gets overlooked. It might be called procedural legislation. That is, Congress is empowered by the Constitution to establish the government of the United States. So Congress can look at the executive branch and say, that agency isn't working, we're going to abolish it. Congress can also look at the executive branch and say, we're missing an agency, we need to create one. So over history, and certainly over the history of the last 80 years, Congress has quite frequently tinkered with the organizational design of the U.S. government. And the assumption generally guiding these actions is the view that if you create an office to do something, you thereby create something in the government that will actually act on that issue. So let me give you an example. Back in the early 1960s, Congress was concerned that trade policy wasn't being given sufficient enough attention, so it mandated the creation of the U.S. Trade Representative's Office. Likewise, in the 1980s, one of the most consequential pieces of legislation uh, was the Goldwater-Nichols Bill, which rearranged the upper leadership of the Defense uh, Department. And these were things in which the 
Congress came along and said, we're not happy with the output. So we're going to change the process because we believe if we do so, uh, we're going to get better outcomes. And I think many of it would hold up. Certainly the Goldwater-Nichols bill is a classic case of a very effective piece of legislation that created a new institution and that improved outcomes. And then you have things like uh, creating a space force or to go back to the late 1940s, creating an air force, which had been part of you know, the United States Army. So that's another way Congress uh, can uh, act. So you have substantive legislation, you have procedural legislation. Sometimes it's very important. Again, Goldwater-Nichols, a uh, classic example uh, in terms of how it functioned. Other times you can argue that Congress passes legislation and it's uh, not as effective. Here, I'd offer up the War Powers Resolution, which I've mentioned before, which certainly didn't have the uh, result that I think its sponsors intended, that the president would work closely in all circumstances with Congress before ordering U.S. troops into hostilities. Indeed, Arthur Schlesinger likened it to a toy handcuff. Uh, so legislation can have an impact or it can uh, not work. I wanted to conclude our discussion today by um, revisiting the idea that oversight today is inherently political and, you know, different congressional action, you know, um, on foreign policy, and obvi- but also not on foreign policy really depends on the eye of the beholder and which partisan leaning um, that you support. So it is perhaps um, looking likely that Republicans may take back the House in 2022 and a divided government um, may like will is likely to lead to a more robust congressional check on President Biden. And obviously that will extend to foreign policy, especially on questions like the withdrawal from Afghanistan. I'm wondering, beyond the immediate political landscape, what is the future of president, presidential and con- congressional relationship in the making of U.S. foreign policy? And is there a way for con- Congress to play a more constructive and um, uh, an effective role in shaping U.S. foreign policy? And obviously, you know, these are very subjective terms. Again, depends on who is looking at um, uh, uh, which party is you know doing what, but. Are there any fundamental changes that should be happening to how Congress, um, you know, is involved with U.S. foreign policy? Well, Chris, there are several questions there, and I'm not going to be able to get to all of them. So let me just sort of carve off a slice of them. You're quite correct that uh, the conventional wisdom here in April of 2022 is that the Republicans will take back one or both houses of Congress in the November 2022 congressional midterms. And certainly if that uh, proves to be the case, that will change the dynamic in Washington, D.C. President Biden will uh, face a much more hostile Congress. How that's going to play out, though, is is unclear. I mean, one thing to note is that uh, so far, the Republicans have resisted putting forward a platform uh, for foreign policy and for domestic policy as well. Uh, You may have heard that Senator McConnell quipped that uh, he would let people know what his agenda is uh, if the Republicans take back control. So it's on that level hard to know where there's going to be overlap, where there can be potential cooperation 
and where there will be conflict. Second point, which I think is obvious to anyone paying attention to American politics today, is we live in hyper-partisan, hyper-politicized time. And it is clear that Republicans will use uh, control of congressional committees, should they take back either or both houses of Congress, uh, to go after President Biden. Uh, There's already been talk among many Republicans on the House side that they will focus uh, hearings on issues like Hunter Biden and his dealings and things like that. And I think that's likely to uh, just further poison uh, the atmosphere in Washington. Uh, you can expect Democrats to complain and you'll uh, hear Republicans say that in their view, this is turnabout and turnabout is fair play. Third thing I would say is it will be interesting to watch uh, if the scenario you laid out comes to play, how the Biden administration will adapt. Uh, administrations can adapt by being more cooperative when it comes to oversight, uh, or it can simply refuse to cooperate. And we've seen that uh, was the approach that the Trump administration took after 2018. So, you know, if you have a case in which an administration uh, refuses to cooperate, it avails itself of all the various legal tactics uh, to delay or filibuster, you can keep a lot from happening. And then hovering over this, and I'll leave you with this point, Chris, is what the public reaction to all of this will be. And here you get the mixture of what the two sides are saying they're doing, how they are perceived to be behaving by voters, and what events are. And that is obviously very, very hard uh, to predict. I think the safest conclusion, if you could have one, is that uh, if we end up with divided government after January third of 2023, that it's going to be even more turbulent uh, in Washington than we've seen in the last 18 months. I know a lot of our listeners are you know, closely attuned to this issue. Thank you so much for the extensive, um, wide-ranging and informative discussion. Well, thank you for having me on, Chris, and thank you, Gina. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.